in Advent here, we are going to be uh, looking at some of the Psalms, uh, some of the uh, How Long, O Lord, Psalms. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 74. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. Um, but before we get going here, uh, we're going we're gonna to pray. Um, you might wonder, why do we pray so much here? Well, frankly, uh, we need it. Uh, but uh, particularly in this time, the reason we pray always, but before, uh, before uh, reading and preaching here is because that, uh, we are reliant upon the Holy Spirit to be, um, to be taking this word and forming it in us and changing us. And frankly, also as, uh, as the one preaching, I'm no one special. And so the Spirit of God needs to be working here uh, through even the, the words of someone uh, like myself. So uh, let's pray. Um, take a moment here before uh, we come to God's word. Lord God, uh, we come before you with ears open. We pray that you would make our hearts eager to hear from you. Uh, If our ears are closed, if we are distracted, if we are feeling lethargic in our souls, we pray that you would awaken us and call us back to attention to what you have to say. We pray that you would give us hope from your word here, that it would... Touch our experiences. That we see from this psalm a, a prayer, a song from your people of old. That we have not changed as people. And neither have you changed. And that is good news. And so we pray then that we beg that you would show us the truth that comes from your word. We pray that we would see your, magnific- uh, your magnificence and your excellency and your glory and grace in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we are a week late, but we are going to begin our Advent series now. Uh, last week we had uh, Tomo Ito again from um, uh, doing his, his, his work in Warm Springs here with us. But we're going to be looking at the, la- the next three weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas. A few of those psalms which cry out, How long, O Lord? And it's fitting because Advent is a time of waiting, and specifically awaiting the Advent or the coming of our Lord. The Old Testament people of God throughout the generations, uh, they, they waited throughout the generations for their anticipated salvation to come from the Lord. And it came to them, as it has come to us also in the Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world as he was born in a manger in Bethlehem on that lowly night. And though as a New Testament people of God, then we also, though, wait for the same salvation and we wait for the same Jesus, but from a different perspective here. Uh, We sit in between the times of his first advent, his first coming, and his second, his return. And we wait, but not without hope. Because Jesus has come before and he will come again to bring completion to what he first started. And although we have every reason to hope and to celebrate as we wait... All of us can also admit that waiting is hard. Especially when you're waiting for for something that you're yearning for so deeply. And the reality is that even though we do have a coming hope, the times in between aren't easy. The light has pierced the darkness, but the darkness is still here. And it will be here until the full glory of the Lord, until the the full glory of Jesus Christ comes again here and will chase and dissipate away all the darkness. And in fact, sometimes the, the presence of the light makes the darkness seem that much darker, doesn't it? Have you ever looked at something bright for, for a while and you walk into a dark room? 
That room seems so much darker, doesn't it? Or if you've been around a campfire at, at night, right? The, the campfire illumines everything around you, but everything outside that circle of light, see, that darkness out there seems so much darker, doesn't it? And we look at the hope of Jesus, but then we look at the world and it seems so dark. How long, O oh Lord? How long will this darkness continue? How long are we to live in such misery? Why don't you rise up and do something? We're so tired, God. Would you send your salvation? And so these psalms all get at those common confusions and longings in the midst of waiting. And so we're going to read this morning and look at Psalm 74, which is described as a psalm of Asaph. Uh, the, the psalms of Asaph are kind of in the, the 70s and early 80s. And if Asaph were a modern songwriter, he would either write blues songs or those melancholy songs that we just want to weep at. Most of the psalms that are attributed to him follow these themes of questioning in the confusing moments and even in the dark moments. So let me read Psalm 74. This is the word of God. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs. And a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Amen. 
This psalm lays out a crisis of faith before the Lord when one of the most unimaginable events happened right before their eyes. The destruction of the temple. The Babylonian Empire had Jerusalem surrounded and under siege. We've seen countless images of Ukrainian refugees fleeing their land before the violence. And the fear and the weariness is written all over their faces. And now imagine that for the people of Jerusalem. Except they had nowhere to run from, run to. They were trapped within the walls of their own city, surrounded by the proudest and the most ruthless superpower that the world had at that time. And the walls of the city were eventually breached, and the Babylonian hordes flooded the city, killing and raping and setting fire to everything, and including the temple. The place where the, the Lord had given them to worship. It was the one visible constant of him being with them over the hundreds of years there, despite the eras of their faithfulness and despite the eras of their, of their apostasy. Because the temple was the visible place where God dwelled among his people. And during its, its dedication under King Solomon, after it was finished, the Spirit of God came down and filled it so that the priests had to run out because they couldn't stand to be in the presence of God there. It was the most meaningful building to these people. And they could look at the temple and still say, the Lord is with us. And that's why there's the shock that this psalm expresses at the, the beginning. Right, right there. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? The one conclusion they have as they look at everything, God is angry with us. But aren't we your sheep? How could you let this happen to us? But just as important there, how could you let this happen to your temple? God, don't you see what's happening? Go walk around. Take a look. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. And it continues on there. The place that was once full of singing and joyful praise. Now all we hear are the sneers and the roars and the mockery of your name by the enemy. They're bringing in their standards and their insignia. And they're claiming that place as yours. But even worse, their standards and flags are all signs of their own false gods. Don't you see what they're saying? They're saying that you are defeated. And they're saying that you're beneath Marduk, their god, and all their other gods. They're acting like lumberjacks in there. They're swinging their axes at, and hacking at everything they can find that's wooden. They've set the place on fire. They've desecrated it with their paganism. Oh God, why are you letting this happen? Who even are you? I know you're not blind. I believe that you're all-seeing. I believe that you're all-knowing. But what about this? You're allowing this to happen. And here we are suffering under their wrath. Or is it your wrath? But see, this isn't only, though, about their suffering. That's certainly part of it, but that's not everything. What this psalm especially pours forth before God is also the dishonor of his name. This is the temple destroyed, the place where he met with his people, the place that he set his name upon. But now all of it seems gone. The only shouts that they, of, of the Lord that they hear now are the mocking mentions of his name from the mouths of their enemies as they scoff at them. How could you believe in such a foolish God? He couldn't save you. 
Or maybe he wouldn't save you. And now he, and now he can't either now. We've crushed your God. We rule the earth. Bow down before us and our might. And these people had grown up and been steeped in all of the Lord's promises. They're his covenant people. But now they're trying to make sense of all of this in light of what they've seen before them. What's in front of their eyes. Verse 2. Remember your congregation which you purchased from old? Remember when you purchased us from slavery in Egypt? Remember when you redeemed us and you made us your special people? Remember when you gave us the temple to, to meet with us? So now why are you enduring all of this evil? Why are you allowing all of these scoffers to profane your name so vehemently? And I'm trying to hold on here, but it's so hard. And these are questions that we still ask ourselves corporately. We don't look to a physical temple that's destroyed. But in the overall arc, the redemptive arc of the scriptures, we see in the New Testament that the church is is God's temple. We're united to Jesus. We are united to Jesus Christ, the presence of God, as John 1 says, the God who who dwelt among us or literally tabernacled among us, just like the, the, the tent which was replaced by the temple, a more permanent a meeting place with God there. And so where does the Spirit of God dwell today? Not in a temple made with earthly hands. It's in a temple of God's people within the church. The people whom he brought together. We're all bricks in the walls of the temple. And so we, we may not look out and see a physical temple here being destroyed and profaned. But we do see, though, how the church as God's temple is trashed and assailed. It's assailed by enemies who are surrounding it from the outside. And that's part of what it means to live in a world still in, in, in darkness. We forget this too often, but there are innumerable congregations and Christians worldwide who live and worship amid physical violence and persecution. Even just today, we have brothers and sisters who have been forced to worship together in secret. But here in the West, though, we have the the church being assailed by by people promoting all sorts of ideologies or telling us to bow the knee to the latest intellectual movement or the latest political ideal or to put up standards of politics in our places of worship. And if that's not all enough, the church is rent asunder from within its own walls. We read of scandals, some of them at devastating levels. Abuse not only happens, but it's covered up. Ministry empires rise and fall and leave people dazed and wandering about the wreckage. It's full of charlatans. It's full of hucksters. It's full of schisms of every kind. And none of this is also to mention the sin which tears at us and it grows among us. The sin that sprouts up in our midst and then we have the toleration and the acceptance of certain sins. And so no wonder the world looks at us and mocks and scoffs at the church. You fools. You're holding on to some antiquated ideas of a powerless God who died on a cross. And you know what? You're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites, which is true. But we ask though still, Lord, why do you allow this to happen? Why do you allow your name to be profaned? Why do you allow them to scoff? Are we really where your presence and where your glory dwells? And of course, these are sentiments that we feel individually too. 
It's the crisis of faith often experienced when we witness God, or when we witness God allowing evil to endure, and sometimes even personally against us. As people are treated unjustly in secret and left to suffer in silence or in their own homes, God, why are you allowing this to happen? If I really belong to you, if all of what you've done for your people is true, and I'm one of them by faith, then why does it seem as if your anger is smoking against me? Why am I made to suffer? And why are you standing by? We have to remember in here that Asaph, the author of this psalm, the human author, was a real person just like you and me. And he wrote this as a real person, though under the influence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he knows the questions that we often ask. And so also does God know the questions that we also ask. And so there are three common questions that we ask in these moments that we can also see reflected here in the psalm. And the first one is, Lord, do you care? Lord, do you care? Verse 11, Lord. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Why are your hands in your pockets? Your name is being scrubbed from the earth. And in the meantime, we as your people who bear your name are exposed and we're in danger. And that's the question so many people have. Does God even care? If he really sees all, if he really knows all, then he sees and knows my anguish. And he sees and knows the anguish of others. And so why doesn't he do anything? Why does he keep his hands in his pocket? Why do his people, why do myself even, suffer under the hands of cruel men? Does he care that his people are harassed or beaten or are falling away? Does he care when oppressive regimes do their work or when competing ideas of truth take root among his people? Does does he care? Do you care, O Lord? How long, O Lord, are we going to continue in this? But the answer, though, that we have in this psalm is that God's people are bound together with God's honor. As we read through this psalm, as we pray through this psalm, because it is a prayer, as perhaps we even sing through this psalm, we can't help but notice that it isn't only about God's people who are under attack. It's also God's honor which is under attack. And when we recognize that, we see how closely those two are tied together. Their cries aren't only because they're suffering. It's because the temple is being destroyed and profaned. Not only are they in crisis wondering who they are now that the temple is gone, but also that God has no house of honor and that his reputation is being desecrated by the nations. Look in verse 10. Their their enemies are scoffing. At who? At who? At them in their weakness and their faith in a weak God, but also because they revile God. It's the same idea in verses 18 and 19. Remember how they're scoffing at you, Lord, and remember, also remember to deliver us from them. At the end, in verses 22 and 23, the enemies of the Lord are also their enemies. And by assailing them, their enemies are also assailing God. And then even in verse 2, at the very beginning... Remember the redeeming acts that you previously did for our ancestors to make us your people, to bear your name, and all of this for your name's sake. See, amid all of the crisis here, the central appeal 
is for God to rise up and not just defend them, but to defend himself, to defend his holy name, to preserve his honor, and to act according to who he is. If he really is holy and just and deserving of all honor, then their cry is for him to make sure that that happens. Let them see you for who you really are. Rise up for your own sake. But see, God's name and honor isn't just words. It's a scene in how he has acted throughout history. And central to how he has acted throughout history here, how he has manifested his name for his glory and his honor here, it comes through his acts of redemption. God is not only the creator and sovereign over all, he's also the redeemer. And he manifests his redeeming name and his honor through the people whom he has redeemed. If you only know God as the powerful creator, you have an insufficient knowledge of him. A true knowledge, but an insufficient knowledge. An incomplete knowledge of God. Because you haven't known him as he has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. But if you do know him as redeemer, if you know him as the holy God who saves sinful people by his son, then you know him sufficiently. Because the full knowledge of God doesn't come from observing the rocks and the trees or looking at the ocean and the skies, but it comes through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God has spoken to us in these last days through his son, who is the radiance of the glory of God. In John 14, Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You cannot truly understand or know God, all of who he is, if you don't know Jesus. You will never know him fully by contemplating the rocks and the trees and the mountains. But you need to behold him and see him in the sun who has come down for us. And he did so because of his deep love for us. But he also did so for his glory that he would be glorified and that his reputation would be extolled for eternity. In the great extended section in Ephesians 1 about our redemption that's in Christ there, uh, the Apostle Paul comes over and over to say that we we are saved to the praise of his glorious grace. As helpless sinners, the right response can be nothing less than praising and honoring our redeeming Lord. But he also gave us a task to take his reputation and honor and to lift it up before the peoples who are around us. His honor is bound up to us as he has saved us. He has put his name upon us and he gives us honor when we had none. Why? So that then we could honor him and display his name. His redemption, his works of redemption in Jesus Christ are made known and manifested and glorified for others to see Through us. So does God care about us? Of course he does. Just as much as he cares about his own honor. Because if he abandoned us, what would that say about him? That he's helpless. That he's weak. That he's a liar. Or that he deals in empty words. But friends, that will never be the case. Because he cares about his honor and he cares about his name. And part of upholding his honor and his name is his never abandoning us or setting aside his care. Okay, but the, the second question though, with stemming from that then is, Okay, Lord, 
How long am I to wait? How long am I to wait, Lord? It's one thing to understand God's promises in theory, but it's more difficult in practice. Verse 9 is all about how long is this going to last? We don't see the signs that you've given us. We don't see anything on the immediate horizon that would indicate that we would have divine intervention come in to rescue us. There are no prophets among us. There are no words from God to explain everything what's going on or even how long we're in this. Is this the new normal for us now? There's no evidence that we have that you are with us. And that we've all experienced waiting. And trials have a way of elongating the timeline, don't they? It could be as simply as mundane as waiting in line at the, at the DMV and being really hungry. That's a trial right there. But it could also, though, be waiting under extreme duress, waiting for something like a diagnosis. And all we want to do is just get to the end, but it stretches on and on, and it is exhausting. But note, though, in here, the theme of time and the stretching out of time. In verse 1, their suffering, it seems, perpetual. Why, God, do you cast us off forever? That's either their perception or it's real. But verse 10, how long, O Lord? Is it forever? Verses 22 and 23, the scoffings last all the day. Their uproar rises continually. And the waiting seems like it's forever. And then it's made all the worse here because there's no way to know when that wait is going to be over. How long is this going to last? How long until you rise up? I trust you, Lord. Or at least I'm trying to. But how long am I going to have to wait here? But the answer, though, that we have from this psalm is that God is the eternal Lord. God doesn't tell us when. He doesn't lay out the timelines of when it's going to happen. But what he does say is that it will be. He will rise up. He will take action. But all in his own timing. And his relationship with time is what makes all the difference. See, the delay of time isn't a sign of God's weakness. It's actually a sign of his sovereignty. He's not bound by time. He isn't trying to find an opportune time to act. He's the Lord over time. He sees time in different ways than we can comprehend, and he acts according, and he will act accordingly. And central to this here is verses 12 through 17. It's this important section of the psalm that conveys his eternality. And amid all the questions and crises, there is still this this statement that it begins with in verse 12, and it's very emphatic in Hebrew. Yet my God is king, or yet God my king is from of old. The temple can be in flames. God's people can be wandering in confusion. And we may be wondering when God will act. We may be wondering what he's up to, but this is true. Yet God my king is from of old. How old? Well, from creation. As the creation account is recalled. How God divided the waters for the dry land and and earth to emerge. It describes him carving apart channels in in the earth for the waters to form rivers and streams. And then drying up other places to turn them into plains and valleys. He established the boundaries of the earth. It says that night and day belong to him. The basic measurements that we have of time and of days. And then with the accompanying celestial bodies that mark their passing. 
He made the seasons that bring order to the year. But in these words, though, too, there are these strange ones also, we read. Sea monsters? Many-headed Leviathan? What's this all about? Well, what they are, they are allusions to the pagan creation myths. See, when ancient Near East peoples like the Babylonians talked about the origins of the world, they believed in stories and myths which described creation in very violent terms. It was all about combat. It was all about subduing the chaos. You, creation was viewed as a battle between the gods and other mythical monsters. And you had creator gods subduing other gods and then taming the chaos that was caused by the monsters. So, for instance, the seas were created by gods killing the sea monsters and bringing order to the waters. And that's what's being described here. Yahweh, the Almighty, defeating the great monsters of, at the beginning of creation and demonstrating his lordship. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that those are true. There's not a shred of affirmation of truthfulness to those myths here, nor does this psalm imply that either. They're, they can't be squared with the clear creation account that we have in Genesis 1. But what this is here is it's a way of communicating apologetically. It's saying that even if all of that did exist, if all of those gods and monsters in that way that you think, Babylonians, about how the world was created, all of those gods and monsters would still be subservient to the Lord God as he is the one who did the taming. And so it's using the Babylonian ways of thinking and their gods and people there and, then, and saying that they are no match for God. He's sovereign. He's in control. Because he created. And, there was, and he was there before anything else was. That's kind of the prerequisite to being the creator. And as the eternal Lord who created, he's also then the Lord over time. He's fixed the world and he's made time. Thus, he lives outside of time and its boundaries. He doesn't wait. He doesn't look for the opportune time to act. He acts according to an entirely different time frame because he's not bound by time. As much as, as he sees his people in their questioning and suffering, he doesn't only see them in the moment. He sees and he knows the future just as he does in the moment that we experience. I won't try to explain it because it's hard to explain and you really, something I can't even understand anyways. You can't explain what you don't understand. But I will though say this as a creature who's bound by time. He sees, God sees what's to come when the wait is over and his promises come to fruition. He sees that just as clearly and objectively as the now time. And that's why Asaph is able to express a repeated trust in the eternal Lord. Do you note that repetition of you over and over again in that section? It's personal. It's speaking back to God about who he is by what he's done. Right? You divided the sea. You broke the heads. You crushed the heads of the serpents. You split open the springs and brooks and on and on. You, you, it's personal. It's speaking back to God the, the things that he has done. And that personal aspect means is going merely beyond just knowing, but it's also trusting. It's trusting in the one who is Lord over all, the one who is Lord over time, and trusting that he will act in whatever way that he deems best, as it's confusing as that might be in the moment. 
And sometimes that's all we have to hold on to. But that brings up, though, our third question, our last question here that we have from, from this text. And that's, Lord, how can I trust you while I wait? I'm waiting, but how can I trust you? All, right, all of God's people wait. Consider this in light of Advent. Here we are, awaiting the return of Jesus, our salvation. We long for him. We groan. We've been waiting for a very long time. And we're waiting in ways that go beyond our own lives, too. Because we as God's people, we as the church, have been waiting for millennia. And the only timeline that we have, the only thing that we're sure of, is that we're closer today than we were yesterday. And we wait for so long for something so grand and so glorious. And it can almost seem like a fairy tale or a myth at times. Because it's something that's so far off. Like it's something to hold on to as a way to cope in the world. This led some people to believe, well, maybe Karl Marx was right. Maybe religion really is just the opiate of the masses. But we wait Amid all the mocking and the scoffing that we endure, we wait as we see the desecration of the spiritual uh, temple before our eyes. Our trust is tempted to waver. And so how can we trust God, though, as we wait? What is the basis, then, for us to really hold tight to what he said? The answer here in this psalm is his covenant. God's covenant. Verse 20. Have regard for the covenant. It's this appeal for God to, to remember his covenant. And a covenant is more than just a promise made. It's an oath sealed. There's a sign of that oath given. There's something concrete that enacts that oath in real time and space. And it's something for both parties to be able to, to hold up. It's for God to remind us of the commitments that he has made. And it's for us also to have a basis for that accountability. And so the, the covenant that God made... Uh, with his people, was sealed unilaterally. It wasn't brokered between two parties or two people, but God set the terms, and then God took all the obligations for its fulfillment upon himself. We see him sealing his covenant in Genesis 17, where God visited Abraham, and he reaffirmed his covenant promises that he had made to him and to his people and to bless them and to bless the nations through his offspring. All of this looking to Christ. And then he sealed it all by himself, by Yahweh, the covenant Lord, passing through a line of cut-apart animals all alone without Abraham going through with him. Because he was saying, if I break my covenant, then may I be like these animals. Then may I be torn apart and ripped asunder. And it's how he could be trusted. It was something to point to. And he continued then to show his faithfulness over and over to that covenant by delivering them, by delivering his people over and over and even giving them more signs of that covenant. So have regard for the covenant, Lord, as it says. And the Lord says, yes, Trust in my covenant. Remember the animals. Remember all the blood that sealed my covenant with you. And that's exactly what happened. There was blood. And God himself was torn apart. Precisely because he remembered his covenant. Jesus' cross is why we can trust even in the darkest times or in the longest waits. Because God's promises 
all find their yes and amen in the crucified and risen Jesus? Will he leave us in the darkness? Will he come back? Will we wait here forever? No, he's not going to leave us. Because God the Father gave his son on the cross to save us. And if he has done that, how could he ever depart from, from continuing to fulfill his covenant promises to us? How could he do anything other than be remaining faithful? How could he be anything other than trustworthy? The cross of Jesus would be the most unnecessary act ever done in the history of the, human, of, of, of the world then. See, stories and narrative, they have these way of forming us and shaping the way that we understand life. You all may have family stories that have impacted you or that have set historical trajectories for your families. And going back to that idea here that we saw of the Babylonian myths and stories, these are what formed their ideas of the world. Stories of Marduk and the sea gods and the taming of the monsters. These stories celebrated strength and violence and grit. This, in their mind, was what the world was built upon. And this is how they viewed life. What do you think that did for them in the face of trials or difficulty or defeat? It was obviously something deficient in themselves and that they needed to fight their way through it to the very end. Just grit their teeth and go through. And thinking about our own society, what do the stories and narratives of our own modern world inform how we face life? But here, though, the story of God crushes the Babylonian stories in favor of a different one. And it destroys our modern secular stories too. The story of the Bible is of an almighty God and a holy God who created and then who acts. Who created humanity who subsequently fall or fell into sin and misery. But though this almighty and holy God is also though a redeemer. And he took on weakness by taking human flesh to live and to die for sinners. It's the story of a God who keeps covenant for us who gives his son for the sake of his people. And how does this story form us? It gives us hope while we wait. Because not a shred of it is by our, of our waiting is by our own strength. It's not by our own grit. It's none of that. None of this has, our salvation has come by our own abilities. It's this rather, that the God is faithful to us. And this story here is one that strengthens us in our faith in this covenant, God, because it constantly points us to him rather than us clenching our teeth and trying to grit it out by our own strength. This story has at its center a God who cares, a God who keeps covenant, and a God who lifts up his people in their weakness and in their desperate cries. So how can we trust as we wait, even in the most dismal of circumstances, because of the Lord's everlasting covenant faithfulness. Because God the Son was sent by the Father for us. And the Son willingly came for us. And knowing that, then we can trust that God the Son will come again. And we come shortly then to the Lord's table. Which is the covenant meal that Jesus gave to us. That he is indeed faithful to his covenant. All because his body and blood, all because of his crucified nature, which has redeemed us. And the promise of his resurrection that's still to come, which we declare and we trust in when we eat and when we drink from this food of our Lord Jesus Christ that he's given us.
Let's pray. How long, O Lord, how long is the foe to scoff? How long will we have to continue to wait and endure amid all the pains, amid the trials, amid hearing the scoffing of your name, Lord? How long will you endure? But Lord, though, we are thankful that we are bound up with you, that we are your people and that you have bound your honor and glory up with with us. And so have regard not only on us, but on your name. And we pray that we would remember in the times where we are waiting that you will come again and you will not abandon us because you have given us so much before. Because your honor and your reputation is bound up with how you continue to be faithful to us and the promises and the covenants that you have made to us. Thank you that you are eternal. And in the times when we are waiting for a very long time and wondering where you are, or you always have been, none of this is outside your grasp or your power. And as we wait, help us to remember that you are not waiting. You are there, watching, seeing everything in your own perfect timing and in your own way that just defies us and baffles our thinking. And so with all of that in mind, we thank you and, and pray that you would continue then to strengthen our faith in our times of weakness. And do that even by this meal that you have set out for us that we will partake of very shortly. Prepare us in our times of waiting and prepare us as we come to the table to receive from the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who was given for us and in whose name we pray. Amen.